HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're kicking off our end-of-year fundraising drive with a special discount offer from our partner, Heritage Foods USA, an online farm-to-table butcher shop specializing in heritage breed antibiotic-free meats. Donate to Heritage Radio Network before Sunday, December 4th at heritageradionetwork.org donate, and we'll send you an exclusive discount code for 10% off all Heritage Foods products. Help ensure another year of great food radio, Get 10% off delicious and sustainably produced meat and support small family farms all in one shot. How's that for a holiday miracle? Head to heritageradionetwork.org donate by Sunday, December 4th to make your contribution. If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified Seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, everyone, and welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, chef and owner of Samisa in Brooklyn. Each episode, I'll be sitting down with a guest as we trace the line of their career through a one-on-one conversation about their childhood, first jobs in food, and the path they chose that led them to become the chef they are today. From how it all began to where they are now and everything in between. I'm super excited about our first guest ever. Joining us today is Chef Bobby Helen of GG's in Manhattan. Bobby, thanks for being on the show. I'm happy to be here. Inaugural. Ugh, inaugural podcast thanks um okay so we're definitely going to nerd out about some pizza dough today but before that i want to just start at the way beginning i want to start with your childhood in staten island so uh tell all the listeners a little bit about what it's like to grow up on staten island so close to manhattan what your family life was like well anybody that lives in manhattan knows that they've you know don't they don't know anything about staten island it's so close they know the ferry but they don't know anything about it um, it's really a closed community. There's not a lot of people that grow up there and leave Staten Island. Uh, it's predominantly Italian-American. Um, it has a few offshoots of like some good Mexican food, um, some stuff, but not a lot. It's predominantly Italian-American. And so when you grew up, uh, you know, was it like um, tons of cousins around, your aunts and uncles lived down the block, like Sunday dinners at grandma's? What was, the, what was it like with the family? 
growing up, it was uh, myself and a lot of my friends had family that lived in Brooklyn. So it was like a big migration from people that maybe came from Italy and then moved to the city or to Brooklyn and then from Brooklyn to Staten Island over, you know, four generations, three generations. So we would family time would be like either going to Brooklyn or going to a friend's house. Um, a lot of grand, like a lot of grandparents, uh, a lot of big meals Sunday, Sunday, like two, three o'clock was like big eating time. So what, what is this big meal? You know, it's the classic Sunday yeah. dinner, the lunch dinner type of thing. Right? Exactly. So. Yeah. So Sunday, it, it meant a lot because, uh, it was like football as well. So like sports were involved. Um, but it starts pretty early, um, kind of wake up late, some coffee, um, maybe something from leftover from the day before. So like if it was a Sunday, maybe there was pizza like before that was big, like growing up, like you would have pizza like daytime and then you'd work into food. And so who's, who's doing all the cooking? Mom, grandma? Um, it was mostly mom and grandma. Grandma would like kind of oversee some stuff mm -hmm. and kind of chill a little oh. bit. But that's how I got into it because big family gatherings like I would do, I would help out and I would want to get in the kitchen. Okay. So tell me a little bit more about how you'd help out your grandma. First off, what was your grandma? Is she still with us? What's no, your grandmother's no. name? Oh, she's got a real old school, like Italian. Her name was Lee. Everybody called her Lee, but her real name was Leonardo. Okay. And so you were always in the kitchen with her? Yeah. And what'd she have you do? Well, first, it's kind of, she would have everything already going. So I would just kind of come in and help out. I remember her and my mom used to make meatballs. And that was a big thing, cutting everything, cutting the bread, cutting the vegetables, balling the meatballs. And then how they did it was fried first, then let it sit, let them cool, and then into the sauce. So like a full fry all the way cooking them? Or are you talking about uh, like searing them probably, off a little bit? Probably. It was, it was more of like a sear, but, you know, it, it took a little while. They, uh -huh. weren't, it, they weren't cooking to temp here. And, and so this uh, – is there this sort of um, feeling in Staten Island like with every Italian family like my grandmother has the best meatballs, my grandmother has the oh, best yeah. sauce. And so is your – was your grandmother's meatballs the very best you've ever had to this day? Yeah, to this day, her and my mom – same recipe, pretty much like the same hands on the, on the food, best meatballs ever. Has that been passed down to you or is that a secret recipe that your mother is guarding? She's actually never showed me everything. <laughs> I, I, and I'm thinking about that now and I'm like, shit, man. Why, why do you think that? She's kept it secret. She doesn't want it to go on the menu at Gigi's. That's I don't problem. know. I've taken a few things from her, so that, um, that, that's going to come. So you've got the meatballs with spaghetti, penne, and then you've got maybe some antipasto on the side. Yeah, and that, that was a big thing. Everybody's drinking red wine, hanging out, watching football. Yeah, antipasto was a big thing. That was like something my mom would bring to like other family gatherings, like Thanksgiving or Christmas or something like that, and give as a present. Like when you when you oh, drop cool. food off as a present is. Is always the best way. Yeah, the the meat platter as a yeah. present. Yeah, yeah, that's a classic. There was no meal. like you know fruit cake during the holidays where everybody's like ah whatever. So were there are there specific uh, like butcher shops or stores on Staten Island that you know your family used to frequent that are still around? Do you remember anything there? You'd go to some like, yeah. super duper old pork store, you know, butcher shop. Yeah, I can't remember the names of the butchers, but I remember going in and with my mom when I was really young. 
and she was trying. You know, they had ground beef, and she would eat it, try it raw. I was like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> but, you know, fast forward, like, all these years now, and it's like steak tartare on the menu. You know, she was trying the product before she put it into meatballs, into sauce, into anything. She was grabbing a taste of raw beef. She was checking the quality, like, right, yeah. before, before but, she was deciding whether to buy it or yeah, not. But, you know. A lot of people now, you know, that doesn't even cross their mind. You know, you go into a supermarket, you buy a piece of meat that's in like a styrofoam thing with plastic on it. And you're like, oh, yeah, take this it, home. It's interesting because, you know, you talked about going with your mom and she would go to the butcher. There used to be a really direct relationship, right, between yeah. people going to their local butcher shop, knowing the butcher and also knowing the product and getting some information. And then it seems like there was a long period of time where you just went to your local grocery store. And then yeah. now we're back, right? We've got all this we're cool, trying. Yeah. we've got all these great butcher shops that are opening up all over the place in Brooklyn and Manhattan. And people are kind of coming back to that, right? That's community. Um, I think we lost that for a while. And going to your butcher, going to even the corner store was a big thing where I was from like a deli in a way but yeah that butcher shop like having that relationship with somebody that's either cutting your food for you or actually buying it you know they're buying a, a half half a cow they're buying like a whole pig they're buying all these things knowing that they're going to sell them to other people in the community but these people you know they come in and you talk you gossip you it's it's you know social media in a way like before social media did, did you ever feel that uh, when you were standing in the kitchen cooking with your mom and your grandmother that this was going to be a career for you? Did you feel it in your bones from a young age or did it, did it not really? Um, it didn't come to – I didn't – I don't know if I felt that way then. I knew it was something I really liked and it was something I was interested in. And I haven't, I haven't done that many other things as far as like for a job, as a profession, but – Cooking was always something that I felt close to, like I wanted to do. I always had questions of, you know, why that ingredient? Why do you cook it like that? And that's kind of where the idea in my head came from. Getting into it was just totally on accident. So before you – I know you went to CIA, but before yeah. you went to CIA, did you cook anywhere in yeah. in high school or anything like that? Did you have a local flipping burgers job or something along those lines? Uh, spinning pizzas. Oh, okay. Where so, at? Uh, this place called Goodfellas in Staten Island. Totally random. I went in with uh, with a friend of mine. He was a busboy there, and we just went in to eat uh, pizza. And uh, one of the owners came up and was like, hey, man, I have an opening tonight. You want to work? And I was like, uh, okay. And then at that point, I don't know if kids still do it now, but you needed working papers. How old were you? You were under 16. Yeah, I was yeah. 15. Okay, so someone had to yeah, sign off on yeah, exactly. you to be there. Yeah. yeah. Does that even happen anymore? I don't know. I've never hired a 15-year-old, <laughs> but uh, I would assume so. There's got to be some labor laws involved with putting <laughs> – probably probably the folks at Goodfellas didn't care as much about the labor laws uh, and putting you much. to work. Not and so much. immediately you show up and you're learning yeah. how to make pizza? Yeah. No. I was um, – I think I showed up either that night or the day after and I was a busboy, washed dishes and that's how it went. And you know, there was a bunch of people that worked in the place that kind of – wanted wanted me to do something else because I was just, you know, turning tables and stuff like that. And the opportunity came up to work in the kitchen. I was just doing some prep and I, I took it. Uh it it went from there. It was great because they opened up another restaurant. 
So when I was 16, they opened up another place. I was able to do construction. And after the construction part of the restaurant, they were like, pick whatever job you want to do. Okay. So what'd you choose in the kitchen? I was like, I want to make pizza. And, uh, and so how did that, uh, the pizza that was made there, were you making the dough with whoever was in charge of the kitchen or were you just showing up and doing line work? Were you starting at the beginning of the day and making dough a day in advance and everything like that? Not, not exactly when I started. When I started, it was more just like throw him on the line and see if he you know, sinks or swims kind of thing. Yeah. After that then came like this is how you make dough, this is how we make the pasta, this is the sauce. This is... And you know, after a while, I think – by the end of like 16 going into 17 they opened up another place and i was opening up restaurants with them and it was pretty early so how did that impact your decision to go to cia you had had some line experience you'd seen what it was like to be involved in a restaurant yeah through all the sort of traditional steps right you yeah worked you dishwashed you worked the line you were in a family establishment in staten island and then you go all the way out to hyde park what was that like probably a totally different change for you oh yeah i have i was lucky that i had a couple people around me uh one of my cousins joe is actually a chef he's a chef and he was kind of like he knew that i worked in restaurants and he kind of put it in my head that maybe you want to go to culinary school so i knew i didn't want to sit in a classroom and do the traditional college thing um and i really never i never left staten island i was one i was a true Staten Islander like I never left and making the decision to just leave and go to culinary school was huge I had a lot of people like around me that were like you know you're good at this this is like something you like to do you should probably do it what's that feeling like when you make that decision and you show up there and you sat in your first class at CIA it was it was you know it's definitely life-changing but I remember sitting there like all right this is something like I'm committing to and I'm gonna do um it was it was crazy the scale of everything you know i i cooked in like this tiny i had my station was two feet by three feet on a little like wobbly table and then here i am at cia with people wearing toques and people saying yes chef and i was just not nearly as polished looking or feeling as i should have been so that sort of uh the the move from Staten Island geographically was also a huge thing because you sort of you were jumping into like a French style of cooking. Yeah. And so how did that uh, how does that influence sort of uh, what your next choice was? Uh, w- did you originally think that you would maybe open up a pizza shop, or when you were at CIA, did it totally change what your thoughts could be about food? No, they um, it, they were big in starting with the classics. You know, you started low down. You didn't work garmage until you learned skills, cutting, chopping, you know, everything. So I, you know, pizza to me just went, just went away, went in the back of my head. And I really didn't think about pizza for a long, long time. Um, and I love, when you go there, you love French food. Like you, that's, that's the way, that's, that's everything. What yeah. uh, classes really stick out for you as remembering? Like were there, was there a certain skill or maybe a teacher or a specific activity at cia that really stood out as you said wow i'm learning something right now this is so going to be so vitally important to what i do later on yeah um a class i really loved they don't i'm not sure if they offer it now they changed around a bunch was in towards the end of schooling was uh scoffier it was like super french kitchen 
and that class was just like it was amazing like all the classic dishes it was great is that mother sauces and all everything the mo- yeah all the mother that? sauces classic dishes um it was just like it's over the top stuff and you know i cooked that way for a little while but you know some some of the chefs there really helped out as well uh you know i wish i could remember all of their names or some of their names but i remember just getting uh when i worked in the italian kitchen um because you go through different kitchens like italian there's asian french and mediterranean um when we were in the actual italian kitchen the dude that was a chef just used to make me get his uh cappuccino or his espresso every day and that stuck with me a little bit of hazing yeah because it was like here's a chef and he's picking somebody to get him his coffee every day that you know just dealing with management and stuff like that i was like well, that guy's like he's a baller. Like he's just like, hey, kid, give me, give me coffee. You, give me that. Showed you how to be a boss a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to jump back a little bit, but also talk about something that happens at Gigi's, which I think is really cool. You've yeah. got a garden out back. Is that influenced by Staten Island time or CIA or a little bit of both? How did that? How did you come to find a love for cultivating plants and vegetables that you have directly behind your restaurant? That comes from Staten Island. That comes from my mom and my grandmother. Uh, it's funny because recently, as two days ago, my mom gave me a rose bush. She's leaving Staten Island. She just sold her house. She gave me a part of a rose bush from my grandma's house in Brooklyn. And now I just planted it at Gigi's. And, you know, that's, I can't even, 60 years that, you know, one rose bush has been around. But they were gardening early on. I remember my grandma's garden in Brooklyn. My mom had a small one in Staten Island. And there's always something I wanted to do and I felt comfortable with. I know a lot of people get scared, you know, with plants and growing stuff. Yeah, there's a general thought process that I'm going to plant stuff and that I'll definitely kill it and that I don't exactly yeah. know what I'm doing. But I've seen your garden and back and it's it's flourishing. How often, what do you type of time do you spend back there? As much as I can. Uh, right now I don't have any help doing it. So it's realistically it would take probably about 10 hours a week to be like nicely manicured and have everything and i just i can't do hours a week so i do like minutes a day and you know try to do it whenever i can take a peek outside go back inside and pull pull weeds whenever i can you know just walking up and down the stairs i see the garden i'm like all right pull that that looks ready pull that so it's it's it takes a long time but you get to stand out in a beautiful garden and you know you step away from all the cars and the garbage in the city and come to this nice like oasis not a bad day to wait way to break up the day during exactly. service we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with uh chef bobby helen chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table and serving produce that comes from local environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth so when shopping for your ingredients look for the new york state grown and certified seal it lets you know which food is grown right right here in new york state certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard 
You'll not only be serving local food, you'll be supporting local farmers. Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified Program at certified.ny.gov. We're back with Chef Bobby Helen of Gigi's, and we're talking about growing up on Staten Island, tossing pizzas at Goodfellas back in the day, and now we're at the CIA. So you graduate from CIA, and then where do you go? Well, they make you do a little externship, so that was really when I got my ass kicked the first of many times. Um, I was at the Ritz-Carlton in Naples, Florida during Easter, which was incredibly difficult to get through but got to cook amazing food there and then you know go back to cia and then after that i did absolutely nothing for about uh, for a good two months i just slept on my mom's couch i don't want you to gloss over this too much i think this is this is interesting for the (laughs) listeners to hear is that uh you know a lot of people think that uh culinary school is very exciting and glamorous and then they also think that working in kitchens is the most glamorous thing you talked about getting your ass kicked what is that like you know what's it like to be a young guy in the ritz carlton kitchen where you're just another face and somebody's probably yelling at you a lot yeah back then it was you know uh, the industry in general is a lot different now uh than it was back then um at the Ritz-Carlton, it was all French, a lot of French guys. It was some of the first sous vide cooking in the country. The machine that they had was crazy, and I it, the ass-kicking was great. Um, it definitely made me who I am today. I, wouldn't, I would never go back and change it. Um, but, yeah, I could see why people say it's abusive and everything like that. But it's, it, it builds so much character, and I don't think anybody did it maliciously. Are we talking super old school, yeah. like grab you by your, your chef coat and yeah. throw you up against the wall, I plates to, get thrown? Yeah. I, was, uh, I worked on Maget, and, yeah, every day people would just be like, you're terrible, you suck. You're ter-. Like, every day. I would get there at two hours early, and I would leave about three hours late. Um, I was getting paid, I think, like seven fifty an hour or six fifty an hour, and I managed to make like some crazy amount of money on my externship because I worked so many hours, and they made you clock in. But yeah, I remember cleaning the. There was one big line, probably about forty feet long, that had two kitchens, like the kitchen that was four star five diamond or whatever the ratings are, and then our kitchen, which was like more bistro style. And I worked on Maget, and I had to sweep our line. So one day I got the great idea to sweep the whole line, which was all like the big chefs and like all the great cooks and I was just sweeping and people would kick me throw stuff at me hit me and you know so I did it the next day and then did, and finally they caught on and they wouldn't do anything and they would just step aside and I'm still cleaning but I would clean they would let me do the whole line um, and you know it just it built something inside of me that was not easily breakable anymore it's uh it's interesting how you say that it you know it built you up because you know it's an activity where they're actually they're breaking you down to hopefully make it so that you can be a stronger yeah. cook and so that you understand about the hierarchy of the kitchen how much of that if any of it has ever carried over into your uh management style i don't i don't mean do you hit people in yeah. the kitchen but what of what course. did you learn from um, that what's the takeaway as a chef i think earlier on in my career i i used that a lot more i used the I'm not saying violent, but definitely yelled more or um, spoke down to people a lot more. Now, I've seen, like, that doesn't always work. Now, more of, like, the the nurturing kind of, if something happens, it's more you let me down than, you know, you totally 
messed up. Uh, trying to build the respect in somebody. Like, I would rather somebody respect me than fear me. Old Bronx tale kind of kind of mentality. What is your take on uh, going to culinary school or foregoing that and jumping into kitchens as someone who is, yeah. is a local guy who, uh, who, who decided to go the classic route? There's a lot of things to consider. Um, culinary school is not for everybody, and I know now that it costs a lot of money. Um, I know people that skipped culinary school and went right into kitchens, and they're great. I think culinary school gives you a good base and helps you understand the industry uh, a little bit more. And it shows you that you don't only have to be a cook to do this. You can be a chef. And sometimes you don't get that when you're just in the industry learning, uh, getting your feet wet. But I can see the trade-off. Um, I would recommend it to specific people, but not to everybody. So after you went back from your externship to CIA, you graduate, where do you end up? Um, like I said, I was on the couch doing absolutely nothing. Uh, my cousin Joe, who's a chef, called me. Um, he was he used to work for John George, and he was like, hey, I'm opening up a new restaurant right now. I want you to come in. Your mom told me you're absolutely doing nothing. Get off the couch. Exactly, yeah. It was, uh, you know, it was a little, you know, wake-up moment. So I did. I woke up. I went into the city. It was in the AWOL Time Warner building. He used to work for John George, like I said, and they were opening up V Steakhouse, which was a short-lived venture behind John George, but it was across from Per Se. It was next to, like, some amazing restaurants, so it was great that I did it, but I started doing pastry. That's how. Okay. That was my first, like, legit, you know, I'm a culinary school graduate. I'm in this thing. Your choice or their choice? Oh, it was kind of his choice. Okay. Because he was like, I'm opening this restaurant. I need pastry. Yeah, my mom, was, my mom was just probably like, hey, he needs a job. He's a bum. So that's how it happened. And he abused the hell out of me. What's the uh, feeling like when you have graduated from CIA? You've gone down and done the work at Ritz, and then you show up. And you're in Manhattan. You're working at a Manhattan restaurant. Oh, yeah. You have to show up with your knife roll and your whole... You know, you think you're you think you're something, and then you come to find out that like, you know, step aside, little young man, you know, you're nothing. Did you feel like you were ready to take on the world? Like you knew how to do every single thing in a kitchen? Yeah, I felt like I did, and you know, how quickly how, when, uh, upon your arrival did you realize that? Man, you... I was working pastry probably the first day, and I had a quenell something, and they used to call me shakes because I couldn't do it. My hand would shake so much I couldn't make the right spoon movement. I couldn't do anything. So off the bat, it was just like I, I knew I had a lot of work to do. And the people in the kitchen around me working savory were from Ducasse, from Jean George, from like all these amazing restaurants and from amazing chefs. And, you know, it wasn't just hard work anymore and it just wasn't talent. It was like a culmination of both. And everybody, it seemed, in the kitchen had that. How did you end up with the uh, Resto Cannibal Gang? Oh, um... Well, from uh, V, a bunch of us moved to California for a while, cooked all over the place, kind of like mercenary cooks. One person would go in to a restaurant and then get everybody else jobs and then push everybody else out and then ask for more money. So we did that for a good two in years. In Los Angeles? In San Francisco? Um, no, it was like mid-Cal. So we started in Yountville and worked our way south to Monterey, Carmel area. Kitchen Pirates. Yeah, that's how it felt. It was great. It was like a Wild West. Did um, you pick up, were you doing that 
like for money or were you doing it for knowledge? Why the move out I west? Think it, it, it was it was both. It was for money and knowledge, and we were with people that you know. If if you're in the game of pushing people out of restaurants, eventually, and sometimes you get pushed out. So somebody would be left without a job. Then we got to move on. It was very you know family kind of in the house. It was four cooks, so it was you know we were a band of of bad ass. You know, it was more like actually like men in tights. But. <laughs> and so after California, you come back here and you end up back in Manhattan. Yeah. Where um, it all started. I, got, I got the opportunity to come to a tasting for a bunch of guys who came to be like good friends and, and offer me a job. But I came back here, flew in to do something. I never wanted to leave California. I wanted to stay there and live there. Um, I did a tasting and they offered us this crazy job, myself and my friend Ryan, to open up a restaurant in Murray Hill. And I was like, where the hell's Murray Hill? Um, and we opened up a restaurant in Murray Hill. There was no, no restaurants in that area that had stars in the New York Times at that time. And so what did you open? We opened up Resto. Um, and, you know, after we opened, there was crazy buzz and Murray Hill, still middle of nowhere. Um, you know, we ended up getting great reviews and getting two stars in the Times and all of a sudden, it's almost like Christian Papanikolos, who's like the operating uh, owner, he just started, you know, this great community in Murray Hill. And all of a sudden, there's restaurants popping up all over the place, getting reviews in the Times. And, you know, he, he really made a name for himself and, like, solidified that, that neighborhood. So it's you and Christian and then Corey Lane was there at the time? Yeah. Okay. Oh, no. Corey Lane came a little bit, like during when I was transitioning out, but the amount of the talent that's been there from the beginning, like Ryan and myself. Were yeah. There. I want, was, I want you to dive into that a little bit man. because the, the resto cannibal team, some serious heavy hitters, a lot of amazing people. Yeah, there. there was, um, the opening team was amazing. And the people that we used to have in the kitchen to come and eat, like we did uh, Christmas with, with everybody from 11 Madison park one year. And it was just, cooking amazing food, shaving truffles, like Paul Lebron, Daniel Hum, like all these dudes, Dave Chang, like everybody was there eating because we were just cooking. And that, that's the only reason why. But the amount of people like that worked in the kitchen, that worked uh, in the front of the house, um, like Dan uh, Ross, he he's like one of the best cooks I've ever worked with and best people I've ever worked with. Um, he came out of there there has been so many people that 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 house has like built and it's it's amazing to see everybody like go on their own and do their own things um and it, it's sad to say that like right now in the industry that we're in right now and the time there's not a lot of that anymore building a team of like really really amazing cooks and super talented people the way labor is now it's kind of yeah, you don't see as much people sticking around, and there's not as much of a – there's a lot of dispersion, right? Like yeah. people stay somewhere for six months, and then they leave. Um, well, what what you were all able to do there was impressive, you know, building up the, uh, the, the team. And then what made you decide that you wanted to go out on your own? How did you end up at Gigi's from there with, with uh, Nick Morgenstern? Uh, well, during when I was, I was leaving Resto, I just felt like – it was a good time to leave because I didn't feel like I was progressing. You know, I took over that when I was pretty young. I think I was like 24. 
or 25, and I was the executive chef of this restaurant. And then we opened up the Cannibal, so it was two restaurants. So it was a little much. I needed to, like... How much were you working, and how little were you sleeping? Um, I don't remember sleeping, probably at all. But, yeah, it was... It was still 90 hours. Did you feel like you were going to like lose it at any point? Was there Were you teeter-tottering on the edge of yeah. success and failure on a, yeah, exactly. a daily rate? I was just totally consumed. I didn't know about anything that would go on anywhere outside of the restaurant. And I would just go home, go to sleep, wake up, go to work, you know, do the whole thing over and over. And I, I felt like I needed to get away. Not super I, sustainable. Yeah, it was, it, it was just becoming too – I let it become too much – of myself and I was giving too much in. So, you know, I do you think that part of that was, did that have to do with your managerial style, your chef style? Like, were you trying to do everything or was it your baby? And yeah, definitely. I was trying to do everything. That was my baby. And I didn't really have, uh, people in around me or maybe I didn't listen, but you know, to kind of guide me in like saying, Hey man, you're a manager now, you know, Christian helped out a lot, like tremendously. But I didn't have, you know, maybe another person to be like, you know, kind of steering me along the journey. Because I was still, the, I was the youngest person in the kitchen in the restaurant sometimes. And I was the main person in You're the, the restaurant. Yeah. So it's just a real big. So after uh, you make the decision to come to Gigi's, where, where you are right now, uh, can you talk a little bit about what you serve at Gigi's? What's the yeah, kind sure. of uh, mentality behind the menu? Um, I'd love for you to talk about the pizza dough yeah. and specifically you know your your process of getting the grandma pizza together oh, pain in the ass process <laughs> it's great um so nick morgenstern we worked together actually opened up resto together he was helping out and we worked on a few things uh after that together he opened up a few different places i helped him out so we were always talking we were always like in conversation about stuff we wanted to do and places we want to go and like things we wanted to serve and you know eventually finally like everything clicked the space clicked the time in our lives was was good um so we decided to open up this restaurant along with um emily and gabe my other partners and it just you know there's four people that did four things really well to come and do this restaurant you know one person handling back of the house one person handling beverage and service so it, it was like a good team again like we we got back to that like start with the nucleus start with the team and then build out through there um and then you know the food we wanted to serve we wanted to be a restaurant with pizza um nobody does and if they do please contact me but nobody does uh a new york style pizza oven in a full service restaurant doing like a la minute pizza um it's not a slice shop it's not a pizzeria it's a restaurant with with pizza that was the mentality opening up and it soon turned to pizza that was in a restaurant which fine with me just makes me work harder but uh yeah the process of of making dough is is something people a lot of people don't know about and flour is something people don't know about the flour we buy right now is cheaper than the crappy flour that's sold and used everywhere else. Interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, so what what kind of flours are you using to make the pizza? Um, well, everything is unbleached, unbromated. So you're going to find both things in a lot of other flour that people use in pizza and pasta. And that's the ba- that's why everybody has gluten intolerance and like all these flour-related problems is because of the crap that we've been putting in our bodies for so long. 
So we wanted to focus on using good products, good flour. And from there, you know, it was how do we push a little bit to make like this great pizza? I had a lot of people working with me when we opened up to nail down the the dough recipe, nail down the sauce, nail down those things. Um, and we made, you know, we came up, I think, second try with like the grandma pie, like how it is right now. Like that never happens. Normally that would be like 100 tries. But we kind of nailed it. And that process takes, it's, you know, maybe 36 hours properly to do, maybe a little bit more. So it sits overnight and you work yeah. the dough the, so we make the next the, day? Exactly. We make the dough ball, and portion it and ball it. And then it cold ferments for about 24 hours. After 24 hours, it comes out in temps. Um, so it's getting warm and starting to rise. You take it out of the tin. You put it in a tray, like a this really dope um, metal, black metal, like black steel pan. Um, and you push it out, and it looks like focaccia a little bit. Less active, but it looks like focaccia. Cover it with plastic wrap, and then that rises. You know, that's another couple hours. And then uh, we do a little tomato water on top of it to keep um, the top from burning, keep it moist. And then we bake that off and then let that sit until it cools after it comes out of the oven. So a double bake. You yeah. par, bar bake par it. Par bake and then... it. And then we go into making, like, actually topping it later on. So I remember when we were first opening and I was like, we're out of squares. And people were like, what the F? Like, that's why I came here. And it was very hard to get into their heads that it's like if I start making them now like they're gonna be ready by tomorrow so gotta come back you really have to yeah so we we got onto this strict thing of like the last thing you do is like 86 this product so our production went up and the labor on the actual product went up and you know it took a little while but you know we have it down to a good science I, I have good people making dough and, and helping me out now so how many how long has Gigi's been open uh, it's going to be two years in September. Congratulations. Thanks. So you put together a good team, got yeah. the dough recipe down. What's the next thing that you're going to be working on at Gigi's or somewhere else? I think the next thing is really making everything as consistent as possible, always. Um, m- my favorite places to go and eat are places that are always consistent, that are you go in and you have you order that burger let's say and it's that burger all the time and it's great that's that's a that's a move right now in order to stay alive and up, keep your head above water in the city you have to be consistent and you have to give people something that they're not getting somewhere else so you know we're serving pizza in the cities there's a few other places so we want to stay around you know another couple of years definitely cool bobby thanks for talking with us everybody go check out Gigi's. where is it plug it all right, Gigi's, 511 East 5th Street. Come between Avenue A and B. I'm in the kitchen, so say hi. Cool. Thanks for uh, sharing your uh, story with yeah, us man. from Thanks Staten Island me. to California and uh, back to Manhattan. And back again. Yeah. All right, this is The Line with Eli. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.